Well, good morning, church family. Oh, man, serious? Let's try that again. Good morning, church family. Wow, okay, that was unexpected. That was a little better. Uh, It is so good to be with the people of God again this morning. Um, Last week and this week, you can probably tell we're just doing a a few things different as far as kind of our flow for our worship service, but um, that's because there's just a number of things that that are taking place. And I just want to first, again, say it's kind of fun today, uh, number one, to welcome uh, the Pinckneys into the church for James and Delilah and for their kiddos. Uh, welcome you. Um, we love you guys. And, uh, and then to welcome my parents, John and Laura, watch Nikki. Now they're members of the church. Get, I mean, how many sons get that opportunity, right, to, to have their parents uh, like that? But I love you guys, and uh, um, I'm grateful to the Lord um, for them. Um, you know, it's interesting to have your family, biological, become part of your church family. Um, but Jesus said something really interesting during his, his life and ministry. And bear with me, mom and dad, uh, for just, just for a moment. You know, when Jesus was approached during his ministry, um, they, there was this moment when his mother and his siblings came to him while he was preaching. And the people said, hey, your mom, your siblings, they're, they're outside. They want to see you. And do you guys remember what Jesus said? He said, who are my, my mother and, and my brothers and, and sisters? And, and what he said was something that has really become the pattern for the people of God. What, what Jesus was saying is, listen, if you are saved in and through Jesus Christ, you're welcomed into God's family. And actually, God's family supersedes any natural biological relationships that, that you have. And, and so I want to just cast that for you just for a minute, because that's one of the things that we believe as a church. When I get up here, or any of the other pastors or elders come and they speak, and they say, hey, listen, you know, church family, we use that phrase. We're using the phrase that, that God used. We want you to understand that when you are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, you're not just saved purely as an individual to an individual relationship with Jesus. You are saved into a corporate body of believers who are identified as the family of God. Can I get an amen to that? And, and, and so this, this identity is huge. And that's why when we do things in our service, we gather on Sunday mornings to worship God. We do that through song. We do that through, through prayer. We do that through taking the Lord's Supper. We do that through the preaching of the word. But then there's times when we gather together because we're a family and we communicate information to you. We share things with, with you that you say, well, how does that fit on a Sunday morning? It fits on a Sunday morning because we're a family. And family, um, that we talk with one another. And you know what? Because there's like over 250 people here this morning, we can't have some of those conversations individually, so we have them collectively. And one of those conversations I'm going to have with us uh, right now, it's, it's a continuation of something that we shared with you last week. Um, as you know, we're really excited to announce uh, that phase one of our new campus, uh, the construction for phase one of our new campus, is, is almost completed. Um, what does that mean? That means that currently at the new church campus site, um, we have poured curb and gutter. We put in a septic system. We've gotten the site virtually ready for one thing and one thing only, the construction of the new buildings. And so by the end of August, church, listen to me, by the end of August, the site for the new campus will be ready for the construction of, of the buildings. So that's really exciting. And, and this first phase was done at a savings of over $200,000. And so we praised and we celebrated um, that last, last week. But we also shared with you something. The big question before us as a church family right now is, well, when will we move into the construction of the buildings? 
when is that going to take place? It's great to have a parking lot and have curb and gutter and, and septic, but what about the buildings? When can we build the buildings for the new campus? And so we shared with you, and I'm going to be sharing it again right now, the fact that the simple answer is when we have the financial resources to do so. Um, we know right now, right here today, that there is one thing and one thing only that will keep us from being able to build. We need to raise as a church family $2.3 million. That's, that's our responsibility. We have money in the bank. We have the value of this property. But on top of those things, we need to raise $2.3 million. If we can raise $2.3 million in the next 11 months, if we as a church family give $2.3 million in the next 11 months, we'll be able to build the buildings. That'll take place. And so if you have your bulletins, I want you to pull something out with me this morning. On the very back of your bulletins, you're going to see a picture, okay? Because I want this to be as clear as, as humanly possible. On the back, you see this little graph at the bottom. This graph at the bottom has a number. It says 2.3 million. That's what we need to raise as, as a church. Now, here's the good news. Are you ready for this? The good news is we don't have to have $2.3 million in the bank in order to start construction. In order to start building buildings, we don't need $2.3 million in the bank. What we need is we need to know that by the end of May of 2021 that we will have raised $2.3 million. And so that's why in your bulletins this morning you're going to see another little card. You're going to see these pledge cards. I want you to pull this out right now. Here's what we're asking. I want to be as clear again as I possibly can. What we are asking is for each and every family in the church, every individual to consider, all right, in order to have this new campus, we need to raise $2.3 million. So Lord, over the next 11 months, what can I give towards it? What could I give to make this a reality? And so between now and the end of July, we're going to collect these cards. And we're asking you to put down what you feel that the Lord is leading you to, to give towards that $2.3 million. We're going to be collecting these cards over the next three weeks. By the end of July, if the pledges that have been made by you and I and others in our church, if they equal $2.3 million, then we know that we can go forward with the construction of the buildings. Wouldn't that be spectacular? Wouldn't that be awesome? If they don't equal $2.3 million, then we're going to have some other decisions to make. And we're going to invite you in on those things. Um, but that's what needs to take place. Uh, are, are we all clear? Let me just break it down one more time. Um, $2.3 million builds the buildings. We're asking you to consider giving over the next 11 months towards that $2.3 million. But what we need from you right now is to know, yes, Dave, Yes, elders, over the next 11 months, here's, here's what I can give. And I'm going to turn in this card in one of the next three Sundays so that you know whether I'm contributing to that. Already last week, uh, we just did one announcement. We had $63,000 that was pledged from nine people last week. Um, there's 200 families that call this their, their church home. Um, you can do the math. In fact, it's right here on the card. If everybody contributes to this sacrificially and generously, we believe that those buildings will be built. And uh, I wanted to share with you from my heart that um, I'm excited. Uh, church, I have no expectations on this except to believe that if God wants us to take this next step, he is going to make it abundantly clear. Do you believe that? I, I believe that. So join with us. Pray. Consider. And if, and if you've given already to the project over the years, I want to just again say thank you. Thank you so much for what you've contributed. And I'm just coming to you along 
with the rest of the elders and saying, we're giving to it once again. What is it that God would call you to give? Does that all make sense? If you have any questions about any of it, come talk to me. Talk to one of the elder, elders or pastors, and, uh, and we'd, like to, we'd like to help you think it through. In fact, if you want to know how much Hannah and I are giving to, to this and how we're going to make that happen, you can come and ask me. Come and ask me personally. Uh, I, I'm more than happy to tell you what sacrifices we've made in the past and how we've done it with the fixed income that we have to make this possible. I have no problem sharing with you what I give to the church. Uh, and, and so say, Dave, how have you guys sorted through? Come and ask me. Come ask me. I'll share, I'll share that with you because sometimes we don't know how we could give to something like this without somebody coming alongside of us and saying, oh, well, what did you do? What did you do? And uh, so um, you might say, I could never ask you. Do I, do I look like somebody you couldn't ask a question to? I feel like I'm a nice guy. Mom, am I a nice person? Absolutely. Thanks, Mom. Okay, there you go. All right. All right. So with that, we're going to turn our attention to the Word of God. Would you bow with me? as we pray one more time and ask for the Lord's help in these things. Father, we come to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, believing you to be the God who reigns on high, the one who is able to do far above beyond all that we ask or think. And so when we come with something like this, Lord, when we think about this new campus, well, Father, we believe that um, you desire this for us. This is something that, that we need as a church, but we also believe that you are the one who will guide our steps and make each step along the way abundantly clear. So, Lead and guide us in that, we pray. Lord, stir our hearts to give back to you what's already yours. Lord, nothing that we have belongs to us anyway. So help us to have that in our hearts and minds. And then, Lord, now, as we come to your word, as we pray for you to lead and guide us in how we are to to give, Lord, would you lead and guide us now into what it is that you want to speak to us as your people. So we pray, and we ask these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. On January 15th, of 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, it took off from New York City's LaGuardia Airport. Uh, the, the flight took off, and as it was taking off, beginning to ascend into the sky, something happened, something kind of tragic, at least for those that were involved. A flock of geese got sucked into the engines of, of the plane. Uh, those geese, may they rest in peace, perished. And that killed the engines on that plane. So I don't know if you know this or not, but a heap of metal um, soaring through the air, what happens when it has no propulsion to keep it moving forward? Anybody have any guesses? It, it drops, right? If you're lucky, it's been constructed in a way that it glides a little bit. But this uh, Airbus that was taking off and now in the air, it no longer had the power to propel it forward. And, and the pilots, once they realized that the plane had no pi- power, they immediately, they jumped into action. Knowing that they were unable to reach any airport, knowing that the situation was perilous, the pilots, one of whose name you're probably familiar with, uh, Sullenberger and Skiles, those were the two pilots that day, they did not get up and start screaming, we're all going to die! We're all going to die! Is that what those pilots did? No. They immediately assessed and took control of the situation. They used their knowledge. They used their experience. And they glided the plane. They didn't land the plane. They ditched the plane. That's the correct term. They ditched the plane as they glided down into, anybody remember the name of the river? The Hudson River. They ditched the plane. They glided and they landed in the Hudson. And what they did would later become known as the miracle on the Hudson because all 155 passengers survived. They were rescued by boats that came out, and Sullenberger and Skiles were acknowledged as heroes on, on that day. It was a remarkable situation, 
that they were faced with. What was all the more remarkable was how they immediately took control. They didn't lose their, their focus. They realized what was happening. They, they took control, and because they did, lives were saved. Um, I share that because today we're going to be looking at a section in 1 Peter where God's word is going to call us to take control, to take control. And so I want you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to consider with me these exhortations this morning from the word of God to us. Because you see, 1 Peter was a book that was written, actually a letter written to a group of people, not dissimilar to you and I, who were living in a time and place in history where they were followers of Jesus Christ. They understood the ethic. They understood the message of the gospel of Jesus. And yet they were living in the Roman Empire, which was diametrically opposed to everything for which Christ and his kingdom stood for. And so they were faced with a situation that was somewhat perilous. How do we, how do we live as the people of God in a world that, that we live in? Where, where we're supposed to, well, worship the emperor. Where, where all the Greek and Roman gods of that day, um, we're supposed to engage in temple worship. We're supposed to engage in these, these rituals. How do we live as the people of God? And so Peter wrote this letter to a group of believers who were spread out over a certain portion of the Roman Empire to, to encourage them and to exhort them. In fact, if you have your Bibles, and I invited you last week to, to really try and bring your Bibles so that you can make some notes. There's a verse. I want you to go to the very end, chapter 5. This really summarizes what Peter was getting at when he wrote this letter. In chapter 5, verse 12, we read these words. Here's what Peter was ultimately writing this letter for. It just fits so, so well. He says, he says this, He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. If you're going to take anything away from what I have shared with you, Peter says, I'm exhorting you to stand in the grace of God that is yours. Stand firm in it. Now, why would somebody encourage you to stand firm in something? I mean, just think about the obvious answer to that. If somebody has to encourage you to stand firm, what's the temptation? To what? Not stand firm. To ultimately fall away. And so Peter recognizes that due to the situation these believers find themselves in, your faith can be shaken. You can get your eyes off of Jesus. You can lose your foundation. And so Peter is saying, I'm writing this so that you would stand firm. And last week, we began to to see him bringing this exhortation, bringing this encouragement in the first part of it. I'm going to look at that in just a minute. But for right now, I want you to jump to verse 13 of chapter 1. Verse 13 of chapter 1. This is where we're going to find ourselves. I'm beyond that page. Let's move on. In verse 13 of chapter 1, we read these words. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that page I need, okay? I'm going to come back to this. There we go. Now, notice the very first word that Peter has here. The very first word of chapter 13 is, or chapter 1, is this, therefore. Whenever you or I are studying the word of God and we see the word therefore, we want to take a step back because that word is a linking word. It's a key word to help us understand everything that's about to come. And you see, when Peter or Paul or John or anyone in the New Testament starts one of their sentences with therefore, what they're telling you is this. Everything that I'm about to say to you is connected to everything that I have just said to you. 
Everything that I'm about to say to you is flowing from what I have just instructed you in. And so if we're going to understand what Peter's about to say here, we need to understand what he has just said. And if you are here last week, you'll remember, what did Peter say to them? He, he began the letter by encouraging these believers in two things. He said, I want you, as, as people who are living in a world that doesn't match up with the values and the message of Jesus Christ, to never forget who you are and to never forget what God has done for you. And he started the letter by calling them elect exiles. And we said that that, that points us to the, the knowledge of don't forget who you are. People of God here today, I want you to hear this message. I want you to hear the message that Peter said to the believers back then. We are the chosen of God. That's what it means to be elect. We have been adopted into his family. He chose you before the foundation of the world, Paul says, to be his, to rescue and to redeem you. If you are in Jesus Christ today, if you put your faith and trust in him, it's because God has set your affection, his affection upon you, and he's brought you into his family. If you are the chosen people of God, do you know what that means? That means that God has a direct care for you. God cares perfectly for those things that belong to him. And when Peter comes and he says, church, you are the elect, he's drawing us into God's full redemptive history and saying, your identity, your identity is one who is a part of God's family. If you're part of God's family, that means that he chose you, he cares for you, he's going to watch over you, and nothing will ever take you from his grip. But then he also calls them the elect, what? Exiles. And we talked about how probably a better word for that is sojourners, meaning that you're strangers. You're not in a, in a place that is your, your home. This place isn't your, your home. In fact, you're not citizens here. While you might on paper be citizens of the Roman Empire, while you might on paper be citizens of America, the truth is that in and through Jesus Christ, you are citizens of heaven. So your allegiance and my allegiance is always first and foremost to the king of kings and the lord of lords. Don't lose sight of that. Because when your earthly king, when they call you to things, when your earthly king calls you to allegiance to engage in certain things and says, this is what it means to be a Roman empire or a Roman citizen. This is what it means to be an American citizen. If that doesn't line up with what the king of kings and lord of lords says, you know that that's not for you. And then he says, don't also forget what's been done for you. That Jesus Christ, what has he done? In choosing you, he's given you a new life. You've been born again, he says in these opening verses. He says, you've been born again into this new life. You've been given an eternal inheritance that's unlike any inheritance that you're going to receive. Church, don't lose sight of this. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what God has done for you. Because, as we're about to see today, if you don't understand those two things, then the instructions, the commands that he's about to give us, well, they'll seem like weights and burdens, things that we can never measure up to. Instead, he comes and he says, therefore, based upon who you are and based upon what God has done, I want you now to hear how you are to live. I want you now to hear what you are to be and, and do. And I love this, church, because something that people get wrong about Christianity is that they believe that you and I do things we obey the commands of God in order that God would love and accept us. And yet what we're going to see so clearly in this passage is this. The obedience of a Christian, the being and doing as the people of God, always and forever flows out of what has always been, already been done for you. Are you tracking with me? Obedience 
And our call to obedience always flows after we recognize what God has done for us. Let me give you the first and clearest example in all the Bible. Adam and Eve in the garden. We focus on the fact that God commanded them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die, right? We all know that. God commanded them to do that. But before he ever gave them a command, what did he give them first? Have you ever thought about that? Before he gave them a command to obey, he gave them the garden. He gave them relationship with himself. He placed them in the garden. And so the commands of God always flow out of his existing relationship with his people. That then is marked again when God delivers the Israelites up and out of Egypt. Do you know that he didn't give them the Ten Commandments when they were in Egypt? Did you know that he didn't come to them and say, okay, guys, now listen. If you start doing these ten things while you're down in Egypt, I'm going to do something pretty crazy. I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt. How's that for a deal? Is that what he did? No, he saved, redeemed, and rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And then he said, as my people, now here's your commands and here's how you are to live. I share those two examples with you amongst many in the scriptures because Peter does the same thing here today. So let's dive in. He comes and he says, therefore, based upon your knowledge of who you are and what God has done for you, what's the first thing that he says? Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first of many instructions that he's going to give to the people of God. And what's he saying here? Well, here's your first take control. I believe Peter's coming and he's calling on upon us to take control of our minds. This is what this verse is about. Take control of your mind. If you are who you are, if God has done for you what he's done for you, therefore, take control of your mind. He emphasizes this in three different ways. He first says, preparing your minds for action. Does that sound like a passive thing? Does that see it sound like something that, that you can, can maybe do if you're being lackadaisical? No, he says, prepare your mind for action. In the Greek, it's this great phrase. It's literally, gird up the loins of your mind for action. When's the last time somebody threw out to you, hey, I want you to gird up your loins? Do you even have a concept of what that is? That's lost on us today. But in Jesus' day, in Peter's day, they wore robes. Did you know that? They didn't have slacks like we have today. They They had robes. And those could be cumbersome when you were walking. And so before they went into battle, before they had to run, before they exerted themselves, they would take their robes and they would wrap them up between their legs and they would tie something around their waist so that basically their legs were free and that they could run around. They were girding up their loins. And anytime you told somebody to gird up your loins, it's like, okay, get ready. And so Peter's coming and saying, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Gird up your minds. Get them activated. Be prepared for, for, for what is going to come. Don't be passive in what you're taking in in your mind. In fact, he's going to use the same word again in, in chapter 4, verse 7, and in chapter 5, verse 8. Both times about spiritual alertness in prayer and in resisting the devil. He wants us to understand that our minds are something that we do not sit by passively with, but that we prepare for. And then he comes and he gives us this. He's going to say, be sober-minded. Not just simply prepare your minds for action, i.e. have your minds always ready, engaged on the things of the Lord. He's going to say, be sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? I I thought about that a lot this week, and I thought the best way for you and I to understand it is to think about, well, what's the opposite of being sober? Somebody tell me. Come on, what's the opposite of being sober? 
with drunk, intoxicated, right? Intoxication, being drunk, it's not a good thing. He's saying this. He's saying, I want you to be sober-minded. I, I don't want your mind to wander into any other thing that would lead to, quote-unquote, mental intoxication. I want you to be clear-minded. What he's telling you and I here is that if we're not engaging our minds, if we don't take control of our minds, our minds can literally, not in the sense of through alcohol or addiction, although that's possible, we can be drunk. Our minds can be hazy. They can be unclear. We can't see clearly the things of the Lord because our minds are polluted with things other than that of Jesus Christ. Do you think that's possible? I remember growing up sometimes, we, my brother and I hardly did this at all. Uh, we would be playing video games. Um, and uh, we would play those video games. And, and my mom would, would come in and said, you need a break. You need a break from those video games because you're just filling your mind with these, with these images. And you can't think about anything else but what you're doing right, right now. And it was unhealthy. Now, that's video games. But listen, as adults, can we fill our minds with other things that intoxicate and distract us? And we can pick on the big one, right? Like pornography is one of those things. That's not being sober-minded. It's having your mind filled with images, filled with things that are not of the Lord. Um. Our minds can be intoxicated by the news today, having negative thoughts because all you see on the news, all that you're taking in, all it is that you're, you're, you're consuming are these images of death and devastation and fear and anxiety. And so we can't think about the things of the Lord. Our, our minds are so given over to these things because, because literally we're intoxicated and we're, we're, we're looking for, for those things. And, and Peter's saying, be sober-minded. Watch what you're taking in. And then finally, the last thing that he says here is this. He says, I love this. Instead, set your hope partially. Is that what it says? Some of the times that was it. Set your hope what? Fully. Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Take hold of your mind. Do not be lackadaisical. Be prepared, be sober-minded, watch what you're consuming, and instead take your thoughts and direct them wholly upon Jesus. Set your hope fully. And, and by the way, I talked about this last week. Hope in the New Testament, hope in the Bible is not a, gee, I hope so. I wish there was a better way to translate it, but, but it's, it's what we got. Instead, when he talks about hope here, he's not talking about worldly hope, which means that that the future is an open possibility. Like, I hope that I pass the test. I hope that when I propose, they say yes. I hope they hire me for a job. That's when we talk about hope. Biblical hope is trusting in a guaranteed, assured outcome. When you ever hear hope in the Bible, the outcome is guaranteed and assured. It just hasn't happened yet. It's not hope to an open possibility. It's hope to a closed eternity. And so Peter's saying, set your mind, church, on your guaranteed future. The fact that grace is yours in Jesus, and one day you're going to experience the fullness of it. Don't let your mind wander to believe that the things here and now are the way that things are always going to be. Take control of your mind. And you do so by setting your hope fully on Jesus. 
I'm taking some time on this point because I want us to understand we're not just physical beings. We're not just made up of emotions. God has given each one of us here a mind. And our instruction is to use all that God has given us, including our mind, where our thoughts reside, where we combat falsehood and truth, and to use it for the Lord. And so my question at this point is just to stop and to say, therefore, based upon who you are, based upon what God has done for you, do you take control of your mind? That is, based upon what Peter says, do you watch over, church family, what you're consuming in your mind? Do your thoughts, are they given over to the things of the Lord, or do you allow other things to consume your thoughts? Do you see the importance of being proactive as to what you take in? I'm just, I'm shocked that so often we'll be intentional about what we consume with our mouths and into our stomachs. Well, we want to be intentional about that. We know that what we take in through our mouths can have an impact on how we feel. But do you see these, these peepers right here, right? For you and for me. What is what we're taking in, what we're reading, what we're listening to is just as significant as to what we're taking into our stomachs. Are we consuming that? Are we giving ourselves over to taking watch with our minds? Peter says this isn't an optional thing for you as a follower of Jesus Christ because of who you are, because of what he's done. You must take control of your mind. And it starts by taking ownership of it. It's saying, I'm not going to be lackadaisical. I'm not going to think that what I watch and what I read doesn't have an impact on me. But I'm a child of God. And so one of the things I want to invite you to do today is I want to I invite you to say, would you claim your mind for Jesus again today? When was the last time you claimed your mind for Jesus and said, property of Jesus? might seem like a silly thing, but but when was the last time you, you went before your father in heaven and said, Jesus, when I say that I give you my life and I look to follow you, that includes taking this, this thing up here, this, this mind that you've given me, and, and, and I'm, not gonna, I'm just not going to let it run willy-nilly, but I'm going to prepare it for action. I want to challenge you to start taking inventory of what you're consuming with your mind, not just your calories. <laughs> What are you watching? What are you listening to? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think about such things, Paul says to the Philippians. Does that mark you? Does that mark my life? I thought, okay, um, take control of your mind. What would that look like on a just a really practical level starting? I'll give you till tomorrow, okay? So today is a free day. What would that look like? Sometimes we say, okay, I need to take control of my mind. I, I know that it's something that belongs to the Lord. I want to set my mind on that which is holy and right and good, and I want to be proactive with that. But, but what does that look like? Well, it looks like sometimes just doing things one day at a time. For some of you here today, maybe it starts with tomorrow taking a fast from social media. Maybe it's not saying, I'm not going to look at the internet for a week, please. Uh, if you can do that, um, just take it a day at a time. Maybe it's going to say, tomorrow, I'm not going to look at any of my social media feeds. Maybe for some of you, it says, I've been so anxious, I've been so angry, I've been so upset. 
because the news is running in the background of my house 24-7, so for one day, I'm going to shut off the news. I'm just going to start with one day. See if you can get through it. You can, and then you go to the next day. You say, you know, I'm going to take another day off. But remember I said it's taking ownership of your mind. It's taking that stand. I'm just asking you to consider what, what is it? Am I watching what I'm taking in? Can I, can I cut these things out of my, my life? I believe that you can. I believe that I can. For some of you, um, how can I say this? Your mind has been given over so long to those things which are now controlling your life. Um, maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's the way that you view yourself and the lies you've been telling yourself. That listen to me, me coming and preaching a message today isn't going to be the solution for you. You're going to hear take control of your mind and you're going to try to address pornography in your life. You're going to try and, and to address a, a distorted image of who you are. And you're going to try and do that on your own and you're going to fall flat on your face. Whap! Because you know why? Because you're trying to do it on your own. And then you're going to say to me, but I got Jesus with me. Jesus and I are going to take control of my mind together. And I'm going to say, good, you go, you and Jesus. You go, girl, you go, man, right? You try and do that, just you, you and Jesus. And you're going to forget that what God has done is he's made you part of, check this, a family. And that you're not supposed to go at some of these things by yourself. And so you want to start taking control of your mind. It's not going to happen with just you and Jesus in the Bible in the quiet of your home. That could happen. Yeah, that could maybe happen. But he says, I've made you part of a family. and We're called to bear one another's burdens. And so if you're struggling in some of these areas, if you haven't been able to take control of your mind in certain things, I'm telling you, I'm inviting you. Don't go at this alone anymore because you're elect exiles, part of the family of God. Come to me. Come to the other elders. Come to another brother or sister in the Lord and say, would you walk with me as I'm trying to take control of my mind? Because I'm, I'm not succeeding on my own. That's going to take humility. That's going to take a full belief in the word of God that we need one another. And so Peter says, therefore, because of who you are, because of what he's done, take control of your mind. But then there's one more thing that we're going to look at today. And I'm loving this because Pastor Paul's preaching next week, so he's got to pick up the verses that I don't get to pick up today. So good luck with that, Paul. Here we go. The next thing that he comes and he says is verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy some of the times, especially on Sundays. Is that what he says? No, so you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy as, or for, I am holy. We come and we read this, and we see Peter here, first talking about the importance of taking control of our minds. Now he comes and he says, take control of your conduct. It's not just about what you're thinking. It's not just about what you're consuming with your minds. It's now taking control, watching over how are you living out the life that has been purchased to you by the blood of Jesus. And he says very clearly here, here's what it looks like to take control of your conduct. Live holy lives. Verse 14, he identifies us as obedient children. Oh, I like that, don't you? (laughs) He he doesn't assume that we're going to be obedient children. He calls us obedient children. And he says, as obedient children i.e. those who have the DNA of God the Father, 
i.e. those who are his sons and daughters who belong to him as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. This is so exciting. He comes to you and me and he says, take control of your conduct because who you already are is you're holy. You're holy in the Lord. You're, you're his son. You're his daughter. You have his spiritual DNA. You reflect who he is in the world. You have his attributes. Like, I don't know if you could tell when I was standing up here next to my dad, you, you, you could clock it and you could say, yeah, I could see how they're father and son, right? There's certain family attributes. Do you know that one of the attributes that have been poured out into you because you've been saved in and through the blood of Jesus Christ is holiness? holiness. It's one of your attributes. It's one of the things that we have now as the people of God. And so he's calling us to live out this holiness. Now, what does that mean? I mean, in church, you expect to hear about holiness all the time, right? You expect that that's one of the attributes of God. But what does it mean to be holy? To be holy, very simply, is this, to be separate. The literal translation is to to cut out That there is something that is markedly different about this thing than that thing. So when it says that God is holy, well, it's loaded with a lot of meanings. He is unlike us in in his very nature and in his being. But in his character, who he is as righteous, as loving, as full of grace and mercy, he says now, like, you don't see those attributes naturally in the world, but that's who I am, and that's who you're now supposed to be. You're supposed to look at the world around you, and you're to be able to say, like, I can see a distinction. When I see sin and when I see evil, I chalk that up to, to being not who I am. God is separate from those things. In fact, we know the passage, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, First John tells us. And so you and I are supposed to look at our lives, and we're to say, Here in this world, we reflect that holiness. We're not to just go with the flow. We're not to just look like the culture around us. But we're supposed to pursue the righteousness that has been purchased by us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Be holy. Why? Because your daddy's holy. It's who you are. And notice how he says here, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter says, the only reason why I can see why you would not live out the holiness that is yours in and through Jesus Christ is because you're going back to your passions, which are tied to your ignorance of not being made righteous through Jesus. So when he says, take control of your mind, and then he says, take control of your conduct, in the same way, Peter's saying, like, listen, we take this seriously. We as the people of God, we realize that our minds are for the Lord and we realize that our bodies and the way that we live in this world, they're for him as well. In fact, just really quickly, he says there's three reasons why you should take this seriously. Did you, did you see these in the text? The first thing that he says is this, it's God's holy character. Be holy, why? You shall be holy for I am holy. Do you know why holiness is such a big deal? Why Peter says you should take control of your conduct? It's first and foremost because the God you serve, the one who saved and redeemed you, he himself is holy. And and to not display the character and nature of, of your God in the world is to call into question whether or not you have been attached to him. If the spiritual DNA of Jesus Christ isn't in you, if the holiness of the Lord is not being demonstrated in your life, you should stop and pause and question and say, do I truly understand? Am I truly connected to this God? Because he's holy. And I can be holy 
because I am holy in him. W-H-O-L-E. And then he comes and he says this, if that's not enough for you to, to motivate you towards holiness, to, to live out who you already are, he says, take a look at God's judgment. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Sometimes we look at God as father, and I love that imagery. God is father, the perfect loving father. And sometimes Peter's saying, we can take that for granted. We can think, oh, he's my daddy. He loves me. He's, he's not going to, you know, he's going to understand. He's not going to be, you know, judgmental towards me. Peter says, whoa, take a step back. He's an impartial father. If, if you continue to engage in sin, Peter's saying, don't you take for granted that you can call upon him as father. Because he is a righteous and he is a holy judge. And, and sin will be addressed by him one way or the other. We don't want to be a people who fall and say, it's all of grace, it's all of grace, God's going to take care of it, I don't have to worry about my actions. No, no, no. The idea of God as father has or should have the exact opposite conclusion. Instead of presumptuous sin, which is always the result of taking grace for granted, Peter motivates us to live out our days in fear because of his impending and impartial judgment. Are you tracking with me on that? Like, it's it's a big deal. It's a big deal, the actions that you do. But then finally, he says this. If all of this isn't enough for you, if, if, if the fact that your father is holy doesn't motivate you to it, that you have his spiritual DNA, if the fact that he's an impartial judge won't, won't motivate you, then consider this. Look at this. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from, from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood, the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He saves kind of the best for last. He says, taking control of your conduct, you taking that seriously, me taking that seriously, sure, I can motivate you through potential judgment. Sure, I can motivate you through saying it's because it's who you are. But then he comes and he says, but consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Your righteousness was purchased by the blood of Jesus. This perfect spotless lamb gave his life for you. Paul would say that Christ died for us, not when we were his friends, but when we were his enemies. That the God of the universe gave himself up for you and up for for me. That he would die so that you would be free from darkness, from slavery to sin. That he would ransom you with his precious blood. Would you consider how costly that was? And when you consider that, would you not consider living in light out of gratitude and out of thanks for what was purchased for you? Consider Christ's sacrifice. Here's where I begin to land the plane like Sully in the Hudson, right? It's not that you and I obey, that we take control of our minds and take control of our conduct in order to earn our salvation Peter's coming again and again and saying, take control of your mind. Take control of your 
actions and your conduct. Live holy lives because of the salvation you have received. This is an outworking of this. Holiness is not an optional pursuit for the son or daughter of of God. And so with all that being said, take a step back right now. And I don't know what it is for you. I talked about our mind. But I want you to take a step back now and consider this and saying, okay, my life. Is there conduct? Are there things that I'm engaging in even today that as I hear Peter's words, I would say that is not a reflection of the holiness of God in my life. Like it's easy to pick on sexual sins and you could easily go to those. I've kind of talked about some of that, but what I want to go to is I want to say, are there areas of your life where the holiness of God isn't displayed? Are you a person that's prone to anger? The anger of man does not produce the righteous life that God has for us. Are you someone who, as you look at your life, are continually bitter? Are you someone who, who is lacking in manifesting holiness because there's this ongoing selfishness or greed in your life? What about your speech? Does your speech, when people hear you, is your speech holy? Does it build up or does it tear, tear down? Ask yourself the question, does, does this area of my life reflect the holiness of God? Or does it reflect my passions, which are tied to my ignorance of who I am in him? Peter says, for you and for me, it has no place in our life, so how do we deal with it? He says, if you're going to deal with it, then the first thing you need to do is you need to consider that it's for that sin, for that lack of holiness, for that area of your life. Do you consider that, that a judgment has to be leveled against it? And, and are, you, are you considering that it's Jesus' sacrificial blood that has to pay for that sin? Every time you commit it, you're, you're committing that which nailed Jesus to, to the cross. Like, do you take seriously the fact that every time we engage in those things, we are engaging in that for which Christ had to die. Peter says, when you frame it in that way, therefore, brothers and sisters, it should draw us to want to say, I'm not, I'm not going to let that remain. And my plea to you is the same as it was earlier, to say if there's something in your heart and mind that you've been hiding, that you've been trying to deal with on your own, now's not the time to just simply continue to, to hide it, but to bring it out into the light and to say, I want the help of the Lord, because he wrote this letter to a church to say, I want to address those areas, Lord, where, where holiness is not on display, and I will pursue and I will take every opportunity to, to address it. Um. For the men of our church, I'm just going to give a really quick plug here. August 1st, we're going to be having a men's retreat. That men's retreat is not just being put on because we like to get together and have fun, although that's going to be a good time. It's because we believe that God wants us to grow in taking control of our minds and taking control of our actions. And this might be a step for you to take practically to, to do this. And so for you ladies, you're going to have to wait till the fall. No, you can start doing things now. But listen, we are elect exiles. We are those 
who are chosen by God, living in a world whose value system does not exalt Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And at times, it's going to be a struggle to live that out. But Peter says, as long as you remember who you are, as long as you remember what he has done for you, then you move into saying, then I need to, day in and day out, take control of my mind and take control of my actions. So here's what I'm going to do to close. I want you to bow with me for just a minute. Just bow your heads. Most of you are in the shade. It's nice. It's kind of kind of a little warm. The, the wind is blowing. And I want you to just take what might be the only moment this week, I hope it's not, but it might be the only moment where you and I need to do something, which is we hear a message like this, and you know what our first response to it should be? Confession. And so with your eyes bowed, with your heads, or with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I want you to consider this prayer. The first step towards taking control of our minds and taking control of our actions is confessing to the Lord the ways in which we're not doing it. And so I'm going to read for you our prayer of confession this morning. But I want you to make it your own as well. Because it's only as we bring these things to the Lord that then we can take the steps to begin to address them. And so, Lord, we come before you as the people of God, and we pray, be merciful. We confess that we've sinned against you in thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. We've done it by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Lord, we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've not loved one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so, Lord, we start here this morning, Lord, seeing our sin, realizing those places, Lord, where we haven't displayed your holiness, seeing those places where we haven't taken control of our minds. And in your mercy, we say, Lord, please forgive us. Help us to delight in your will, to walk in your ways. Sanctify us. Make us holy through your Holy Spirit. And through our lives, bring glory to your name. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I don't know what it is that you might have confessed to the Lord this morning. I don't know what it is that you might need help by the Spirit's power to address. But I want you to first and foremost hear what we already read this morning. Here's God's word to you. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, amen, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Your first step in taking control of your mind and taking control of your conduct is knowing that for any sin which you have committed, if you have confessed it to him, know today the blood of Jesus Christ covers it, amen? Amen.